at the end of our both of our readings uh, together, so at the end of both, I will um, say that this is the word of the Lord, and I invite you to respond with hearts full of thanksgiving and worship by saying thanks be to God. Let's begin. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest, and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled bud that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. And that time his voice shook the earth. But now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. And then John chapter 4, verses 19 through 26. Let's begin. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. You may be seated this morning. We started here last week looking at Hebrews 12, 18 through 29, and we did make our way to John chapter 4 as well by the end of our time together. And it was very simple. At the end of the day, 
What we came away with last week is that if there is such thing as acceptable worship, which the preacher in Hebrews says, let us then offer to God acceptable worship, then it must be true that there is unacceptable worship. And so we went through uh, looking at uh, different examples of unacceptable worship that we find in Scripture, starting all the way back in Genesis chapter 4 with Cain and Abel. We looked also at uh, the example of Nadab and Abihu, um, who literally uh, experienced the consuming fire that God is that is mentioned here at the end of Hebrews chapter 12, as they themselves Instead of the sacrifice, they themselves were consumed by the holy fire of God. We looked also uh, at Amos chapter 5 and the indictment of God against Israel's worship, who even though they were doing the right things in worship, because outside of corporate worship their hearts were far from God, God said that your worship is, is an abomination to me, essentially. He said, I will not receive uh, your worship. I will not receive uh, your festivals and your worship. Uh, we looked then in the New Testament as well. We saw the continuity uh, that we do not believe that there was one God of the Old Testament and, uh, who was, you know, uh, kind of grumpy and, you know, really strict and suddenly changed in the New Testament is now more gracious toward us and a little less grumpy. That's not the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And what did we see? We saw in the same way uh, Ananias and Sapphira as they came and they brought an offering before the Lord to bring to the apostles and lied to the Holy Spirit about that offering, what happened? They uh, dropped dead. They let, Let's rephrase that. God killed them. God killed them because of the attitude in which they came in a spirit of deception uh, at a time of worship. And not only that, we were reminded of the very passage of Scripture that we read each and every Lord's Day when we come to the Lord's table in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, how that Paul says that there were many who were weak and ill and some had even died for coming to the Lord's table, not rightly discerning the Lord's body. And this is the deal, guys. Many people believe that if we are just sincere, that that is all that matters. If we're just sincere when it comes to worship, that that is all that that matters. I'm reminded even as in saying that of something that Spurgeon once said and wasn't necessarily in connection to worship, but just this idea of that being sincere is enough. He said, you can sincerely cut your own throat. You can sincerely take poison. It doesn't matter. It will kill you. You must not only be sincere, you must be right. <laughs> uh, truth matters. And when it comes to the worship of God, uh, we need to be right and not just sincere. God is holy. Why were Nadab and Abihu consumed 
by the fire of God because God is holy and his worship is holy and he takes it very seriously himself. He is a jealous God, he says, who will not share his glory with another. He is a consuming fire. And so if God, who is our God, takes the worship of himself so seriously, we, who are called his people, who are called by his name, who have had the blood of the eternal covenant, as it says in our text this morning, sprinkled upon us to wash us and cleanse us and sanctify us, then we too also ought to rightly take the worship of our holy God seriously. It ought to be conducted, as it says here in verse 28, with reverence and with awe. I was thinking about this this morning. When I was growing up, you know, we didn't gather in uh, rented facilities, at least the, the churches that I was a part of. We, we gathered in church buildings. They were church buildings. They were buildings that were built for the conducting of God's worship. And if you uh, have ever been in a proper church building, there is something even to the architecture of churches that speaks to the reverence and awe that we are meant to have when we come into the presence of the Lord. Uh, as a small child, I maybe didn't get that from the architecture, but one thing that I knew for certain even as a child is that I must not, and some will uh, uh, have some nostalgia here, I must not run in the sanctuary. I must not run in the sanctuary. Why? Because it was in the sanctuary that the worship of God took place. Now, I might still get in trouble for running in the foyer, but it would be for different reasons, right? And, and, and that foyer was there for a reason. And it wasn't just so that the people could fellowship together. It was so that there would be, even as there was, in a sense, a division in the temple between the most holy place and the holy place and the outer courts, there was a division so that even in our own minds and in our own hearts, we would understand that we are entering into a place where, as it has been said, is holy ground. So that even our posture and our demeanor and our attitude would change as we walked through those doors. I talked about how that for us, even though we are renting a facility, even though the architecture of this building may not proclaim the things that we wish that it could proclaim to us by its very existence, even still, as we gather together as the people of God this morning, this Casa Holotus room is our sanctuary. And we are transported through these portals into a heavenly place. We are not seeking uh, to bring heaven down to earth, but rather God himself is lifting us to a transcendent place, into the holy place, into his very presence. And so it's important that we understand that our worship 
ought to be worship that is filled with reverence and awe. This should cause us to think and consider deeply uh, many things as it regards our worship of God. Um, I hinted at this last week, but let me mention it again. Uh, most people spend more time uh, considering and preparing uh, to watch a movie or attend a sporting event uh, than they do uh, considering the worship of a holy God. Uh, think about going to a sporting event. Uh, I will rightly discern the body of my team by making sure that I do not arrive in the wrong colors, so to speak. Uh, that, that I may even don particular garb uh, in order to attend the event of this sports team. What it, that requires some consideration. That requires some, some foresight, some planning. I might actually even prepare food ahead of time so that I might tailgate uh, at that event. Uh, this requires consideration. This requires some organization. Uh, again, with the movie theater, there, there are certain things that I will make sure that I do so that I can get in and I can see that movie. And depending on who you are, you either get there so that you can see the previews because that's important to you, or you slide right in because your liturgy of the movie theater, you've got it dialed into a science. You can just slide right in as that screen goes dark. It takes planning. It takes consideration. It takes organization. It takes foresight. It takes a little bit of effort. And yet when it comes to the worship of our God um, more often than not, and this is a generalization, most people do not put the same amount of consideration into the worship of God as they do some of these other things. Now, is that to say we shouldn't do those things ever? No, that's not to say, but it's, it's to stir up our minds and our hearts to consider how we are approaching the worship of God. When I was a child, um, I was not allowed to go to the bathroom during service. was not allowed. I had better go before. Why? Did God care if I had to go to the bathroom? No. But it was a distraction to other people in worship to have a little kid running down the aisle to go to the bathroom simply because they didn't go before service. Now, that is not a hard and fast rule for life. That was a little Michael Joshua Hooper rule from his mom and dad. But what was the purpose of that rule for my parents? Just like not running in the sanctuary, it was there to remind me that the worship of God mattered that when we came to this place, it was unlike any other place. I could get up and go to the bathroom in a movie. I didn't want to, but I could. Why? Because it was a movie. It was not the worship of a holy God. And so we need to reckon this in our own minds. Now, as we ended the service last week, I actually came away Heavy. I don't know if any of the rest of you came away heavy. I came away heavy. I actually expressed to Joel last week that 
that I, I, would, I, I had a heaviness because I felt like I missed an opportunity to turn a certain corner that I want to turn with you this morning. Because this is all rather heavy and it's difficult to hear in some ways. Uh, especially if I take an account of my own life, I take an account of how I'm coming to the worship of God and realize that there may be some ways that I am actually not rightly considering the worship of a holy God in my own life. That is, that is, it's fearful. In fact, that's what the writer in Hebrews has said before our passage here. <clears throat> Turn back to the left just a little bit to Hebrews chapter 10. Verses 23 through 31, excuse me, it says, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Listen to verse 25, Not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day Drawing near. In the King James, uh, something that we might all be more familiar with, the wording of that particular verse in 25 is what? Do not forsake the assembly together. And so we're talking about our corporate worship. We're talking about the, the assembling together of God's ecclesia, that assembly of, of called out ones. It says, For if we go on sinning deliberately, After receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant which by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace. For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. Listen to this, verse 31. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And so these things are, are heavy. We, we have to rightly consider, have, have I been coming into the worship of a holy God rightly? Have I been considering it rightly? Is it something that I have taken lightly or flippantly? I'm, I'm, I'm considering these other lesser things as more important. I'm, I'm giving them more precedence in my life than the worship of God. That's a fearful thing for someone who believes in this holy God, who loves this holy God, who wants to please this holy God. It is a fearful thing. Um, it's sometimes helpful to receive a critique from the outside. Uh, famous Pulitzer Prize winning author Annie Dillard said this about Christian worship. She was raised in the church but has since apostatized. And uh, we pray for her return uh, for the sake of her own soul, us it be made clear that in the end, uh, as she with others, they went out from us because they were not of us. But she said this, on the whole, I do not find Christians outside of the catacombs sufficiently sensible of conditions. Does anyone have the foggiest idea what sort of power we so blithely invoke? Or as I suspect, does no one believe a word of it? 
The churches are children playing on the floor with their chemistry sets, mixing up a batch of TNT to kill a Sunday morning. It is madness, she says, to wear ladies' straw hats and velvet hats to church. We should all be wearing crash helmets. Ushers should issue life preservers and signal flares. They should lash us to, the, to our pews. For the sleeping God may wake someday and take offense, or the waking God may draw us out to where we can never return. That's a critique from the outside. Someone who, it seems, at least in some way, as she grew up, had an idea that God was holy and cannot reconcile the flippancy with which his people take and consider his worship. And she has right reason to. Uh, just uh, a little over four years ago, I never forget seeing a particular headline that kind of came across my screen, uh, not believing it to be true. In fact, hoping it was the Babylon Bee, but it was not the Bee, uh, where a youth pastor at a prominent church in New York City uh, took the stage dressed as the uh, tourist attraction naked cowboy, uh, where he was literally uh, almost naked, sand, uh, with the exception of some briefs, and a guitar strategically placed around his nether regions. And this was happening on the stage as a part of the worship of God. I will also not forget an actual Babylon Bee article critiquing some people in these kinds of circles, uh, making up a story trying to express just how ridiculous things had gotten that someone was using a water slide for baptisms. That was a Babylon Bee article. What was not a Babylon Bee article were people that I knew that read the article, could not see the preposterousness of that satire, and said, what a fabulous idea, why didn't we think of that? Now, those are outrageous examples. But they are examples of things that are happening in the church of Jesus Christ, supposedly, in our world today. Now, it is not our job this morning merely to point our fingers at other people that we believe are doing them wrong but rather to look inwardly at our own selves and say, we may not be doing those outrageous things, but is there any possibility that some of that flippancy and that attitude has, through the pervasiveness of our own culture and the, the spirit of our age, the zeitgeist, if you will, has any of it actually crept in and seeped into my own heart, to your heart? Because, believe it or not, the, the slope from where we are to that place is really not as far as you would think. And so it's important for us to consider these things, and so we are. In doing so, we must reckon with what it says here. 
in Hebrews 12, which is a fearful thing. This is why. And I love the providence of the Lord. We didn't plan the Old Testament reading this morning according to what we were preaching. That was the planned reading for this morning, for this day. And it quotes the very thing that uh, Hebrews 12 is referring to here, where they ask Moses that the voice may stop, stop speaking. Because it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Why? Why have we fallen so far that what can constitute even being entertained as worship, which really has become worship for entertainment, is what is taking place rather than considering what might offend a holy God. Rather than considering what might offend a holy God, we collectively, as the church, especially in the West right now, especially the evangelical church, we are more concerned with offending visitors who might walk through our doors who may quite possibly not even be saved. We're more concerned with offending them and their common sensibilities than we are with offending a holy God. The truth is, is that people who are not believers rightly ought to feel awkward when attending the worship of a holy God. Now, it is not our prayer that they remain in that state. But there should be so much of an otherness. And don't forget that what does holy mean? Holy means altogether separate and other and different in perfection, in majesty, in glory. And there should be such an otherness when they come into a house of worship that it should strike them as being other, different, holy. But, we have not considered what might offend a holy God, but rather what might entertain sinners who are visiting our churches. And that has caused the worship of the church of Jesus Christ to change in ways that it probably ought not to have changed over the years. Where we begin worshiping according to our own will rather than the will of God. And literally, this is what Paul is describing, Colossians 2.23. It says, These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. But literally, the words in English, self-made religion, literally translated is will worship. The worship of will or the worship of man's will. And so when we come to worship and we start considering what we want instead of what God wants, we are participating in that kind of will worship. Beloved, the gathering of the church is for the worship of God. 
and the building up of the saints. It is not for ours or anyone else's entertainment. Now, can we enjoy it? I hope you do. <laughs> what is the chief in the man? To glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Or, in other words, enjoying Him by glorifying Him and glorifying Him by enjoying Him. And there ought to be joy and jubilance and celebration in the worship of God. And those who love God will enjoy it. Now that, again, does not mean that we take it flippantly. But we can enjoy it still with reverence and awe. Does that mean it must always be somber? No. There is a way to be reverent and in awe and yet be joyous and celebratory. But we need to understand that worship is not for our entertainment. And so what we do matters. How we do what we do matters. Why we do what we do and how we do what we do matters. And it matters because of who we are worshiping. Who we are worshiping matters supremely. So it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. And last week I felt that heaviness. I, I felt I wanted to, to lift up for you the holiness of God, the, the majesty of God, the awe that we must come before him. And we had to look at the severity of this holy God in order that our own hearts might be convicted. But I came away heavy. What I don't want to happen is uh, something that happened for a friend of very, very dear friend of mine recently. Uh, he's been exploring uh, things of the Lord more deeply than he ever has, and, and he started to consider prayer. And an, in considering prayer, he was, he was convicted in his own prayer life because for him, Father, Son, and Spirit had really kind of just amalgamated into this one sort of thing, and, and he really did not have a clear concept of of approaching the, the, the God who is three in one in prayer and, and even how we are to come to the Father in the name of the Son by the Spirit and, and his, his prayers were all mixed up and he was convicted, he wanted to pray rightly, he wanted to pray rightly because he understood that God was holy, he wanted to please the Lord, but as he fumbled around with his words, he became fearful, fearful to the point of almost being paralyzed to pray. Kept away from praying because he was paralyzed and petrified in a sense that he might pray wrongly. He might pray wrongly. And so I, I wrestled with my, my brother, my friend, and, and we began to talk about these things and we need to understand what it means for us to be sprinkled with the blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. And so, yes, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But should we then be in fear, afraid, 
paralyzed into inaction? The answer is no, absolutely not. Uh, the thing that I, I pleaded with my brother to, to, to begin to think about and comprehend is that uh, um, we need to remember that while God is holy, and in His holiness there is severity, that God is abundantly good. He is good. And He has expressed and demonstrated His goodness to us. How? Most supremely. In Christ, in His Son, whom He sent to die for our sins and to be raised for our justification so that we might be sprinkled clean with the blood of the eternal covenant so that we might be justified by Him and all those whom He has justified, He will also glorify. That there is no... Uh, breaking or divorcing of those two things in the life of a believer, he who has been justified, he who has been justified will also be glorified by the same Jesus Christ. And so, should we be in fear? No. I said, come to your Father who loves you. Come to your Father who is good. Come to your Father who has given you Christ and who has sprinkled you clean and understand that your Father knows your frame. He knows that you are but a man. And in the, even as a man, as a believer in spiritual things, you are but an infant. And I said, consider, he had just adopted a little boy. I said, consider your little boy. Just now he's going to start speaking. Even now he's kind of babbling words. Do you get angry with him when he doesn't say his words incorrectly at that stage of his life? What parent, what parent who actually loves their child will chastise an infant, toddler, young child who can't quite get the right words out in the right way? Even the grammar Nazi parents, okay, are not sitting there railing their infant and toddler children for their grammar and diction. Rather, what's happening? Man, the phone is out. They're videoing the first words to send it to everyone. Put it on Facebook. They're writing it down. If there are some people write things down, they're writing it down. Okay? My wife writes things down. I don't. I just file it away. Oh, yeah, that happened. Um, you know, some people diligently putting it in a baby book or whatever. And, and what's the deal? They are ecstatic. Now, the words that may have come out may be all wrong. A kid may look at his dad and say, Mama, the dad doesn't care. He's not offended because the kid said Mama instead of Dada. He's like, my kid spoke to me. Right? Now, does that change? Yes, it changes. As that child progresses and matures and grows in their understanding of language, of decorum, of manners, that changes. A child might begin to be chastised for how they speak and what they speak and to whom they speak and why. Right? It changes. But it is in correlation with that parent's own understanding of their level of maturity. I said, brother, don't, 
Don't be paralyzed into not praying. Your father loves you. He wants, he has spoken to you through his word. He wants you to speak to him in prayer. Just pray. Think about these things. Consider these things. Seek to grow in these things. But don't be paralyzed into inaction. And trust, trust, ultimately trust, that Jesus' own prayer life to the Father has been attributed to your account. You understand that we need both the passive and the active obedience of Jesus in our account. And through this great reversal, this great uh, uh, exchange that has taken place as our sin has been transferred to Christ, His righteousness, both actively and passively, has been transferred to us. It has been, the word is, imputed to us. And we have, if we are in Christ, we have received both his active and his passive obedience into our account, which means what? Every bit of right worship that Jesus offers to the Father is in your account. Every right prayer that Jesus has offered to the Father is in your account. Get this, his prayer counts for you. Guess what else counts for you? His baptism counts for you. Because we sin even when we're not trying to. We sin in our worship at times. And yet God in His grace, because of Christ, as a loving Father, yet receives our worship. He understands our frame. But what did it say in Hebrews 10 that we were reading just a moment ago it said for if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth there no longer remains a sacrifice of sins we're not going to get into all of that this morning but there is this understanding that as we receive knowledge about the truth we are then accountable for that truth now some people some pastors even in ages gone by have taken that to say we better not actually preach everything that's in the Bible to the people because then they'll be accountable for it. What a ridiculous notion that is, and yet you can understand how someone might come to that conclusion. Well, we're actually saving them by not preaching this part to them because if we do, then they're accountable for it. But rather, what should we do? We want to grow. We want to mature. We want to see the very things that we studied together in Ephesians chapter 4 to come to pass in our own individual lives and in our collective lives together as the body of Christ in this local congregation. What does that mean? We should desire that things are being revealed to us from the Word of God that actually challenge us to change our thinking to change our attitudes, to change our actions so that we might become more like Christ. We might bring our lives more into alignment with His Word. Why? Because we love Him. Because He loves us. Because we want Him and He wants us. And so, <clears throat> we need to understand that as things are brought to our attention that we are then accountable for those things. And then what? We... What, mu what must we do? 
Repent. Repent. So it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. But should we then be in fear, afraid, paralyzed into inaction? No. Go back to Hebrews 10 and let's read what the preacher uh, says for us just before the passage we read just a moment ago. We'll look at verses 10 through 22. Hebrews 10, 10 through 22. And by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Church, your sanctification has been paid for by the sacrifice of Jesus Christ just as much as your justification. Does it happen in the self-same way as your justification? No. But in an already not yet sense, it is finished. It is accomplished. But your experience of seeing that walked out is happening in real time as the Holy Spirit is working on you in your life. But listen to the past tense way that the preacher refers to this. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Now, the preacher, all through Hebrews, what is he doing? Who are the Hebrews? The Hebrews are the Jews. And all through the book of Hebrews, what is he doing? He's showing how that Jesus is the fulfillment of the old covenant. And how that the new, remember I said that there's one word that sums up all of Hebrews. The new is better. It's better. And so he's showing how that there was one form that was set up. And there's a new form which is better and it's all hinging on Christ. It says, And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. Why did the priests have to keep killing bulls and goats and rams and doves over and over and over again? Because those bulls and goats and rams and doves could never actually take away their sin. It says in verse 12, But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Why? Because it was finished. It was done. To Telestai, paid in full. It was finished. He sits down at the right hand of God. Verse 13, Waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. Quoting Psalm 110. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. So now hear the change in the tense of the sanctification. But also, what does it say? For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. So that's the experiential part of that in space and time. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us, for after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them, after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering of sin. We're reading through verse 22. Listen to this. <clears throat> It is a fearful thing to fall in the hands of the living God. That's where he's going to get. But before he gets there, what does he say to us? Therefore, brothers. Therefore, why? Because of this sanctifying 
of us by God through Jesus and the work of the Holy Spirit, who are, we are now perfected for all time and are being sanctified. Therefore, because we have received forgiveness of all of our sins, because there's no longer any sacrifice for sin, because he will remember our sins and our lawless deeds no more. Therefore, <clears throat> brothers, he says, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, what does it say? Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. And then we get to where we were. Let us hold fast the confession of our faith. Let us not forsake the assembling of ourselves together. And on and on it goes. So because of Christ, we need not then be petrified and paralyzed in fear to fear approaching a holy God. But rather, because of Christ, we ought to be filled with confidence and boldness to come before our Father. Yes, the King and Judge of the whole earth, who has, in Christ, taken off His judgmental robes and opened up His arms to embrace us as Father. Okay? And so, we need not be in fear. Jesus sanctifies us and even our worship, and we need Him to do so. We must also remember that the world's idea of worship is man reaching up to God to somehow pull Him down to Himself, to manipulate Him to do this or that or the other thing on their behalf or for their benefit. But is that Christian worship? It is not. In Christian worship, what do we see? We see, rather, that the gospel shows us that our worship is meant to be a response to a God who has already condescended to us. He has already come down to us in Christ Jesus and has worked and is working everything according to the purpose of His own will and glory and church. His glory is your good. His glory is your good. So we can confidently and boldly come before God because of the work of Jesus Christ for us and on our behalf. We don't have to be afraid to approach Him. We don't have to live in fear Everything that we're doing is, is actually causing us to be removed further away from God. But rather that even as we stumble our way towards Him, even sinning at times in our worship, that because of Christ, God is still accepting our worship as the babbling of precious babes, so to speak. Does that make sense? Now, that should not cause us to want to remain babbling babes, but rather should cause us to want to grow up into maturity 
and to worship God to the best of our ability in the way that he has called us to do so. We are not doing anything for him in our worship, but are rather being served by him even in worship. We are on the receiving end of his grace extended to us through his appointed means. Now, I wanted us to turn that corner. So Christ is sanctifying even our worship. So we don't have to live in fear of what we are doing, but rather we can continue to press in towards him with an attitude that says, God, as you reveal to me by your word anything that is out of line with you, my response is what? Surrender. But it's my favorite song. We sang it at church camp when I was a teenager, and it really makes me feel good. Our response ought to be that if it is shown that it is out of line, our response is what? Surrender. Because God is a jealous and holy God. He will not share His glory with another. And if it is not appropriate or acceptable for worship, our response should be surrender, knowing that His glory is our good. Okay? I had to pick on that one. I've got a few of those myself. I, I, uh, moving on. Moving on. No, I won't move on. So, uh, recently, a famous singing duo uh, released a retro vintage uh, worship album, uh, which contained a lot of worship songs that I grew up singing, mostly choruses and these things. And uh, I remember putting it on, and that, that nostalgic feeling came and I was like yeah I'm like singing along to songs I hadn't sang in a long time and as I'm singing I'm going oh oh wow no 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 why why no stop <laughs> now they bad songs and it's, well it's, anyway I'm not going to go into that but suffice it to say there's some songs that we don't sing anymore and I'm glad we don't sing them anymore still can make you feel good but it reminds us as well that worship isn't about our feelings. Worship is about God and His holiness and our response to His holiness. Amen? Anyways, I'm sure that you have some things like that as well. Um, the gospel shows us that our worship is a response to God. The reason that's important is because our worship is meant to be dialogical. So I'm going to introduce some terminology this morning in our remaining moments that will help us in the coming weeks. So get ready for a vocab lesson, all right? It's not supremely important, but it will help us in having language as we speak about things. So one of these words is dialogical. Think of the word dialogue, right? Dialogue is what? It's not a soliloquy. It's not a monologue. A dialogue is two. It's interaction. It's one person speaking a person hearing, listening, processing, and responding in kind, right? It's dialogue, and our worship is meant to be dialogical in nature. What does that mean? It's that even though the sermon is more 
monological, so to speak, that our worship altogether is meant to be dialogical. We are meant to come understanding that we don't come to hear from a pastor. We come to hear from God through his word. He is speaking to us through his word. And yet there ought to be response from God's people. Um, I'm a parent of five young children, and there is nothing more frustrating in my life than speaking to my kid and them just staring at me and staring at me and getting done and being like, so do you have anything to say about that? And they just stare at me. I find that highly frustrating. That is a point of contention in our house. I, I'm not trying to just, you know, uh, lecture you. Like, I want there to be a dialogical name. I want to understand that you understand what I just said, that you're connecting the dots. I want that in my life. That's just me as a human being. God has structured our worship in such a way that he speaks to us, but also invites us. This is a beautiful thing. He invites us to respond. And we have ways of responding in worship. There ought to be times and points of time in our worship that are meant to be responsive and corollary to the revelation and voice of God to us through his word, like a conversation. And so over the coming weeks, as we go through our different points of service, and you, I told you this morning, use that sheet that has these different things. I want you to start to think through how the flow of our service is dialogical, how that there are things that are happening where we're receiving the word of God and then responding to the word of God. Uh, sometimes we're even responding to the word of God to us with his own word. Remember, when we went through the Psalms, what did we say? That the Psalms were God's words, God's own words for us to return to him. Right? And so we do that in our responsive psalm. We have the revelation of the Old Testament reading. It's a revelation of God's character, his nature, his works, his person. And we respond from the Psalms, which is also God's word, but it's God's word to us, for us, to return to him. And so we respond in that way. That's one example. We'll talk more about those things as we go through the coming weeks. Our worship is meant to be dialogical. Why is all of this so important? The uh, theological minds that are much greater than mine and much older and dead um, had a Latin phrase, lex orandi, lex credendi. Lex orandi, lex credendi. It's Latin for the law of what is prayed is the law of what is believed. Lex orandi, lex credendi. Sometimes this is expanded as lex arandi, lex credendi, lex vivendi, which is the law of what is prayed, is what is believed, is the law of what is lived. You see, as, as, as people begin to look at the church and our worship of God, they begin to see something. Is that no matter what people were being told what to believe, it was actually how they worshipped that informed their beliefs. How they worshipped informed their beliefs. And so even the structure and the form of our worship is instructional to us in ways that we don't even understand or comprehend in the moment. There is a way that I believe this happens uh, in 
our own homes. Uh, so let me say it this way. Um, make no mistake. Make no mistake, parents. Your kids will walk away from your home having grown up with you and their understanding of what you believe about God will be more directly shaped and molded by how you prayed and how you worshipped than what you taught them. Because lex arandi, lex credendi, and ultimately it leads to lex vivendi, which is how they will then believe and live. How you pray and how you worship will shape and mold your kids more than what you teach them. Now, this doesn't mean don't teach them. By all means, teach them. But let the expression of your life to them and your own prayer and worship match what you're teaching them. You can't teach them that God is holy and then flippantly attend the worship of God. What will they walk away with? They will walk away believing that you don't believe that the worship of God is important, and they will not either, apart from uh, the intervention of God. Praise God for His intervention. Some of you are here this morning because of the intervention of God in one of those cases. Amen? Our forms and elements of worship are teaching us about God and what to believe, and that will affect how we live. If it is an afterthought, if your prayer life and your worship in the home and, and the way your kids understand it, the way your wife understands it, the way your husband understands it from you, if it is an afterthought, if it's treated more like a superstition than heartfelt devotion or worse, sometimes prayer and worship in the home has been used and as an abusive tool of manipulation, if that's happening in your home, then that is the concept of God and his worship that will be shaped in your children's minds and hearts and in the minds and hearts of your spouse and the people around you. So what should our response be if we realize that we're not worshiping God according to his will and purpose? We've already said it's repentance. I encourage you this week, go and read First, Second Kings 22 and 23. It's the story of King Josiah. And what happens, King Josiah becomes king... Uh, at age eight, and his father was an evil, wicked, sinful man, and his grandfather was an evil, wicked, sinful man, and they were kings over Israel, and as they ruled wickedly, the people lived wickedly, and the worship of God was corrupted in Israel, and as Josiah took the kingdom one day someone comes and they say that Hilkiah found the scroll of the law of God in the temple. And they brought it to Josiah and they read it to him. Likely the first time he's actually ever heard the reading of God's word. And he was broken. The Bible says that he ripped his robes in two and cried out because he understood then that he was responsible and accountable for
for the knowledge he had just been given about the worship of a holy God. And he knew that God's wrath was going to be towards them as a people. And what did Josiah do? Josiah brought that scroll. He didn't keep it to himself. He brought that scroll. He gathered all the people. He himself read it to all the kingdom of Israel. And then he said, it's time to clean house. And they went, and what did they do? They tore down all the altars in the high places. They went through the temple and they cleared it of any and every um, perversion that had been brought in through idol worship into the temple. They wrecked house. They wrecked and cleaned house. And they instituted again the right and acceptable worship of God. So what is our response if we realize we're not worshiping God according to His will and to His purpose? It ought to be repentance and the fruit of repentance. What is repentance? Repentance is metanoia, a changing of the mind. That happens in an instant. There may be build-up, there may be lead-up, but ultimately there comes a watershed moment where in our own minds, by the conviction of the Holy Spirit, we agree with God about our sin. That is repentance. But that's not all that we need. We need not only a changing of the mind, we need the fruit that proceeds from repentance. And that's what most people think repentance is, but it's actually what comes from repentance is that changing of behavior, that changing of the pattern and the habit of our life. Uh, Josiah's repentance happened the moment he heard the reading of God's law. But the fruit of repentance is what transpired afterwards as he brought the word of God to the people and then cleaned house throughout the nation. And so uh, we also must have that uh, attitude of surrender before God. Uh, this is why uh, the reformers said, Semper reformanda. Not only do we want to reform, but we always want to be reforming. What did that mean? Change for change's sake? No, not at all. It meant as we understand more clearly what God's word is calling us to, we want to continually be bringing ourselves into alignment with his word. And so that ought to be our attitude in our worship. Um, our own worship as Redemption Hill. Why, why are we doing this? It, you may notice that usually around the time of every new year, we usually will do some kind of series that speaks to the life of the church in some way. Uh, a lot of times we'll talk about eldership and deacons and the structure of the church, church discipline. We want you to understand how the church is supposed to operate. But this year as we came here, we knew that there were some things that we were going to begin changing about our worship. There are some things that we have done purposefully as, uh, and you've heard me use this kind of metaphor in a lot of ways before, like training wheels for us. I'll give you an example. Just a couple of weeks ago, we had our benediction uh, sermon, and we used a different benediction on that day than the one that we use every week at the end of our service. Likely, in the coming weeks and months, we are going to start using different benedictions at the end of our service. We'll still revisit the one that we have done so often, but we'll use some of the other benedictions from the Word of God. Our prayer through this is that as the practice has been established, 
as we've used that benediction week in and week out, and the practice has been established, now our minds and our hearts can be further engaged as we change it up just a little bit so that we begin thinking more deeply about this better word that Christ has spoken over us that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. And so that's just a, a slight little change, but we're going to talk about why, why we're changing that. Uh, another thing that we may begin doing is, is changing the, the confession that we use every week uh, so that we are actually confessing a, a broader range of things together over time so that we can again uh, be instructed, lex arandi, lex credendi, we can be instructed through the very structure of our own worship how we ought to believe about God's holiness and our sin and His forgiveness and His Christ. These are different things that, that might be changing in the weeks and months to come. Uh, we've chosen the new year a lot over the last, uh, and, and I keep failing to bring this up, but I'll bring it up now, by the way. Praise God, hallelujah, congratulations. This month is seven years as a body, a local body and congregation called Redemption Hill. That's awesome. Uh, in, in at around the time of Easter this year, we will celebrate seven years of gathering together on the Lord's Day, and, and we're actually planning to, to, to celebrate that properly by more than just saying, uh, yay. Um, we're going we're gonna to do something festive together in, in a sense. We're going to feast, literally the word festive, feast. We're going to feast together and celebrate the goodness of God in giving us seven years together. But we've chosen the new year oftentimes to bring in some of these changes. Why? Because it's natural. Uh, I was with a, a dear brother who's here this morning, just informed me the other day that now is the time. Now is the time. If you want spring tomatoes, now is the time to plant new seeds, okay? If we haven't passed it already. Are we still good? Okay, we're still good. Now is the time. Plant your seeds. It, it, the, the, the light of nature shows us even that this time of the year is a good time to plant new seeds so that we can reap a good harvest and fruit may come from those seeds planted. And so it's our prayer over the coming weeks as we go through these things that new seeds will be planted in our hearts, that we'll have a better, fuller understanding of our worship, why we do what we do, um, that we'll have a, a deeper appreciation and consideration of God's holiness and our response to it, that we might offer, as it says in Hebrews 12, acceptable worship to God. We're not going to get to the rest of everything that we had uh, for this morning. We will push that to next week and we will talk about elements and forms and circumstances uh, next week so you'll get your vocabulary lesson uh, next week suffice it to say there is acceptable worship and there is unacceptable worship that is a fearful thing as we approach a holy God but we do not approach him on our own merit but rather we come to him sprinkled clean by the blood of Jesus Christ the blood of the eternal covenant. Therefore, brothers, let us boldly come before the throne of grace that we might find help in time 
of need. Amen? Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word this morning. May it be what it is intended for us this morning, a communication of your grace to us. God, I pray that we would grow in our reverence and awe of you who is a holy God. I'm often struck, Father, by the response of Isaiah who entered into your presence and though he had gone through all the ritual cleansing, though he had gone through all the things that were necessary, yet he understood that he was still yet a man with unclean lips who dwelt among a people with unclean lips and that lest you should cleanse him, he must surely die to be in your presence. God, we, we come into your presence and we have enjoyed the great pleasure and luxury of being able to waltz in as children and rightly so. And yet, Father, may we not come into your presence so flippantly that we pay your holiness no mind. Rather, God, would you convict our hearts so that we might grow in reverence and awe and love and devotion and adoration for you, who is our Father, but also our God. Thank you for bringing us to this place. Thank you for receiving our worship even as faltering and babbling as it is. May we grow and mature in your presence. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God bless you as we move into a time of communion.